In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Well, last week we turned our attention to the Apostle Paul's command for us to work out our own salvation. And as we said, taken by itself, there are several ways that that phrase can be misconstrued. And that's why the context is so important. And within the broadest context of biblical doctrine, we looked at two popular notions that Scripture categorically denies. They simply cannot be. Working out your own salvation cannot mean finding your own way of salvation, for there is only one way of salvation, by grace through faith in Christ alone. It also cannot mean that we're saved by our own good works. Notice that Paul doesn't say, work for your own salvation. Again, Scripture is clear on this matter. Romans 4 tells us that a worker is owed his wages. And that means that if we work for our salvation, then it becomes a debt that God owes us. And that turns salvation completely on its head. We're the debtors, not God. And the ransom was paid to God, not the devil. The devil didn't hold the deed either. God holds the deed to all that exists, and we're debtors unto him. And so Christ paid the price to the Father to satisfy the justice and pay our debt. So this is a debt that we could never work off. God has to forgive that debt. It's the only way. And so as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us so clearly, salvation is nothing more than the gift of God, and it's not of works, therefore no one can boast. All glory belongs to God alone. And that's the very foundation on which we understand anything at all about who God is. Now, as for the narrow context itself, that satisfies the broad context. As for the narrow context itself, we have to pay attention carefully to Paul's wording. We are to work out our own salvation. In other words, this salvation is not something we're trying to obtain for ourselves. It's a salvation obtained for us by Christ. This salvation is ours. It's already ours. It's our own salvation. And this salvation is a gracious gift given to us by God. And also the language is plural. In other words, Paul isn't talking strictly about a private endeavor here. Paul is speaking to the whole congregation collectively. There's only one gospel and one salvation, and everyone who comes to Christ comes the same way. And so working out that salvation then occurs in the context of the covenant community. The salvation that we have isn't an exclusively personal matter between myself and God alone. Now, of course, there's a personal aspect to my salvation. The body of Christ can't believe for me. I must believe the gospel. I must trust Christ for myself. But the gracious salvation we receive must be worked out among the saints with whom we worship. 
And that's the sense of the plural here. And then there's that word translated work out. It doesn't mean to obtain or to generate. He's not saying obtain your own salvation or generate your own salvation. The idea is working toward the attainment of a goal. It's the expending of energy in bringing about a proper completion to a matter. Now, again, this assumes that the salvation is already ours. I mean, you can't work out what you don't have, right? You know, we often tell people who are having a problem in a relationship to try and work it out, right? You can't work out anything in a relationship if you don't have a relationship to begin with, right? You know, think about it in simpler terms. You can't work out an arithmetic problem unless you first have the mathematical terms that define the problem. You have to have a problem to be able to work it out. And the same is true. You can't work out a salvation you do not yet have. This is really important. And so the idea here is more like making an effort to develop the salvation we've received. And remember, salvation has three aspects. That's why it can be worked out. There's the past, the present, and the future. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And so when we come to Christ, we're not changed all at once, are we? We must grow in the grace and knowledge of the one who saved us. And this present experience of our salvation is what the Bible calls sanctification. And the future aspect that we will receive when Christ comes again is called glorification. And so there's the past, the present, and the future. In the past, we have been justified by the work of Christ. In the present, we are being sanctified by the work of Christ. And in the end, we will be glorified by the work of Christ. And when we finally appear in Christ's presence and see him face to face, whatever is lacking still in our sanctification will at long last be complete. How do we know this? Because John says, when we see him, we shall be like him. There's a lot in me that's still not like him. I still have a long way to go. But when I see him face to face, whatever is left will be made full and complete. And so working out our own salvation then is a matter of us striving to obey the Lord here and now in everything we do and say. And so as for the context of Philippians itself, this passage also has a context that helps us understand what it means. This command actually mirrors the admonition that Paul begins this extended instruction with. Remember that command back in chapter 1, verse 27? He says, it is of utmost importance that you live in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. So how do we live in a manner that is consistent with the gospel? Well, here Paul tells us this gospel way of life is working out our own salvation. I mean, after all, The gospel of God's salvation is much more than just merely the forgiveness of sins. Yes, Jesus bore our iniquity and he bore it all on the cross. And by that he reconciled us unto God. But he also lived a perfectly righteous life in our place. 
The Son humbled himself. He left the glories of heaven, and he became incarnate that he might identify himself with those he came to save. He identified with us in his humiliation that we might identify with him in his glorification. You see, God saves with purpose. We always have to remember that. God saves with purpose. And the gospel of Christ is that he came not only to save us from sin, but also to conform us to his righteous image. You know, this is the problem with the simplistic, just as I am kind of gospel preaching. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. We do come to Christ just as we are because we can never make ourselves acceptable unto God. If we waited to come to him until we made ourselves acceptable to him, we'd never come, right? So we can't make ourselves acceptable to him. Only Christ can do that. But he did, you see. He did. He pardoned our insurmountable debt. However, his saving work is vastly deeper and far more potent than that. The mere forgiveness of sins will never make us acceptable before our holy God because he is holy. Listen, neutrality isn't good enough. You can't just start with nothing. And of course, we wouldn't. Were our sins to be forgiven, if it weren't for the continuing work of Christ, we would blow it the very next second. He could wipe out every sin we have ever committed in the very next moment we had sinned again. This is why it takes his sustaining mercy and grace to keep us. And so indeed, it's not good enough just to have our sins forgiven. We must be made righteous. And so, though I'm able to come to him in no other way than just as I am, if I truly do come to him, I will not stay just as I am. Do you see the difference? We can only come to him just as we are. But if we truly come to him, we will not stay just as we are. Listen, the gospel isn't, Christ did everything for me, so there is no need for me to change. No, the gospel is, Christ did all of this for me to make change not only possible, but inevitable. Christ's work makes the change in his people inevitable. It will be. It will be. And so as Romans 8.29 says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined. What? Just to have their sins forgiven? No. He predestined that they would be conformed to the image of his son. And this conformity to the image of Christ is certain because as Paul goes on to say, those God predestined are none other than the same ones he called, justified, and glorified. And all of that is in the past tense, meaning that in the mind of God, it's done. We haven't lived it out yet, but it's done. So my point is, our whole journey of salvation from beginning to end has been planned by God. It flows out of the Father's eternal purpose, and it was accomplished by Christ's saving work. The scripture says it so clearly, it is God that justifies us, not our good works. And our salvation is certain because we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 says, that we might be holy and blameless in the sight of the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All of that is in Ephesians chapter 1. 
And so we see, indeed, that this is what God is doing. From the divine perspective, it's a done deal. Now, of course, the point is here, it all has to play out in time, right? And so Paul says, to us, pursue that obedience that we know is actually going to eventually be perfect. But even though it's not perfect now, pursue it. Work out the salvation you have been given. You know, God has graciously granted us the opportunity to participate in our salvation. I want you to think carefully about how I just said that. He's graciously granted us the opportunity to participate. I didn't say contribute to. Nothing we can do and anything, no matter how good we do, no matter how much progress we make, we're not contributing one thing to the perfect work that Christ has already accomplished. There's nothing we can do to add to the perfect salvation that Jesus obtained for his people. In fact, God merely, if God merely initiated our salvation and then left the rest of it up to us, well, every single one of us would be doomed. Why? Again, God is holy. There can be no slip-ups. You know, this was a part of the problem in the early church over a debate as to whether the book of Hebrews should be included in the canon or not. Because there were certain people who didn't understand what the writer of Hebrews was saying, and they believed that the writer of Hebrews was implying that once you've been baptized, if you ever sinned again after baptism, there was no salvation. Of course, that's not what he's saying. And once the councils of the church got together and they understood that, then the book of Hebrews was readily accepted. But do you see the point? What they realized is that once we're baptized, if we sin after that and we're doomed, then there's no hope for anyone. Christ died in vain, right? And so that was the point. And here is the issue then. No matter how many advantages God might give us, if any single part of the securing of our salvation is left up to us, all hope is lost. All hope is lost. But thanks be to God, that's not the case, right? And Paul is going to make that clear now in verse 13. Because he explains how it is that he can command us to work out our own salvation and yet remain utterly and completely confident of our full and final salvation. If we have to work out our own salvation, how is it that Paul can be so confident that it will indeed be a full and complete salvation we experience? Well, we're going to see that. We're going to see where Paul's confidence lies. Paul's confidence is so unshakable because it rests not in us, but in the power of God. His command to work out our own salvation is undergirded by a statement of fact, divine fact. You know, this is typical of Pauline's method, the Pauline method for giving instruction. Paul so often bases his imperatives on indicatives. In other words, his commands are grounded in the realities of what God has done. Paul says, do this, and here's why you can, because God has done this, you see. And you know, that's usually the order in which they're given as well by the Apostle Paul. He starts with the indicatives. He starts with the statements of fact about what God has done, and then he says, now you do this. 
So normally what we have is a statement of divine reality followed by a command that's based upon that divine reality. A great example of this is the book of Hebrews, excuse me, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Six chapters, the first three chapters, all devoted to assuring us of the eternal and unchangeable reality of the Father's purpose, a purpose that was accomplished by Christ, a purpose that was then applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. All of that is in the first three chapters of Ephesians. But then it's in light of that that in chapter 4 he turns a corner and now gives us commands, commands that we can obey because of the divine reality that was established in the first three chapters. Well, we actually see the same thing happening here, only the order is reversed. Here Paul gives the command first, and then he tells us why it is that we're able to obey the command. Paul is reminding us of the eternal realities that we often lose sight of as we struggle day to day in this wearisome and frustrating world of sin. And it is, isn't it? This is a wearisome and frustrating world of sin. And in the day to day, the the trudging through this life, so often we can lose sight of the wonderful truths, the divine truths, the reality of that which is yet unseen, but we know is true by faith. And so this is the way Paul usually approaches, therefore, correcting sinful behavior. You know, Paul doesn't ever say simply, stop it, knock it off. No, that's not the way Paul corrects. If you look How often he prefaces his correction by saying things, do you not know? Do you not know? Have you not yet come to terms with this particular divine reality? Or perhaps you've just forgotten it. So let me remind you. That's what Paul does. Do you not realize that your behavior is so at odds with the divine reality? You see, What Paul knows is that legalism just produces Pharisees, that's all. Legalism doesn't change us in the least. All it does is produce a false righteousness. Because we have no power to obey God in ourselves. So you can tell people all day long, stop doing this. And they may stop physically doing it, but they'll continue to do it in their heart. Right? We have no power to obey in ourselves. And so what Paul says is we need to know and believe what God has done. We need to trust in the work of Christ. This is why so much preaching today is so shallow and anemic. is because we're not focusing on God and what he has done. We're just focusing on us. And there's not a poorer subject to focus on than us. And there's not a greater subject to focus on than God. Now, this is what we need to hear. We need to know what God's purpose is. We need to know what God has done. We need to know the assurances that come from him. We need to believe and know and trust in the work of Christ. And so we need to be reminded of these divine realities that make the otherwise impossible possible. As Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, it is God who makes the unachievable 
achievable. And so we need not despair. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. I want you to think about that for a moment. That's when Paul says, when I am weak, then therefore I am strong. For it's his strength in me. It's his strength in me. It's similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 6, where he tells us, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. There's nothing about our power in any of that. Because we don't have any. It's all in him. So now I want us to look then at what Paul says. Let's consider the entire context here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That word for could also be translated because. Work out your own salvation because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, as we consider the divine reality then that undergirds Paul's command, then let us take a moment to contemplate the wonder of what he's saying. The statement may be rather brief. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, but there is so much there. The apostle wants us to remember what we too easily forget, and we forget it to our own peril, always. Now first, then notice how Paul shifts the emphasis from us to God. In our own struggles, that's exactly what we need to do. Shift the emphasis from ourselves and unto God. Are we relying on him or are we trying to do this in ourselves? Right? Paul says, no, I want you to think God. Think him. So he switches the emphasis from us to God. He says, work out your own salvation for it is God who is at work in you. And that is truly an astounding statement. Let's just take it apart for a moment. Because it should cause us some pause in reverent reflection. It should erupt in us in joyous praise to understand what he's saying here. The one who is at work in us is none other than God himself. The very Lord of heaven and earth. The creator and sustainer of everything that exists. He's the all-knowing God. He's the all-powerful God. He is the God from whom there is no escape. He's the God who is everywhere at all times and in all places in all of his fullness. He's the God who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. The God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The God who swears by himself because there is no one greater by whom to swear. That's who's at work in us. And then notice... Where this awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing God is doing his work. Is he some distant and aloof observer, someone who is orchestrating his will from afar? Now, as we heard in the passages read this morning, and actually this was mentioned in Sunday school, it's the world, the enemies of God, that he knows from afar. No, 
Our God, yes, he is transcendent. Scripture says he is also imminent. He is above and beyond all that exists, but he's also as near as our breath. In fact, as near as the breath of every living creature. Actually, we would have to say it this way, that all of us, including the rebellious inhabitants of this world that are at war with him, we all live and move and have our being in him. That's what scripture says. However, this is really important because this little distinction is a vast chasm of difference. You see, though the people of the world are in him, he is not in them. Do you get the difference? The whole world has to be in him because they wouldn't exist otherwise. But he is not in them. Simply being in him as opposed to he being in us as, as, is as different as day and night. In that kind of intimacy, him being in us belongs only to those who have believed the gospel, those who have come willingly and worshipfully bow before him, their knees bended in his presence, proclaiming his lordship. God only indwells those he redeems. But that's how near God is to us. He's not only all around us, he is in us through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The God of all glory is at work in our lives from within. His work in us, in other words, is not some kind of indirect outside influence. It's an immediate, inward, divine operation. It's an inside job. God is working on us, and it's an inside job. And this is an important truth of Scripture, you see, because, as I said, God redeems in order to indwell. That's his whole purpose. In the beginning, the intention was that God was going to dwell with humanity, and the garden was that temple, that first temple of God, and Adam enjoyed intimate communion with his creator. But then Adam sinned, right? And he was banished from the garden temple. And though creation continued to exist in the all-sustaining power of God's omnipresence, humanity was cut off from the Lord's revealed presence. There's a difference. But thanks be to God, all was not lost because in pursuit of his eternal purpose, he began to draw near to people. He redeemed Israel from Egypt that he might dwell among his people and make his presence known to them. And so God begins again to make himself known. It's not as intimate as it will be, but it is a step in the right direction. You see, though he moves closer, at that time it's still necessary to maintain specific degrees of separation. And there's a simple reason for it. The one true sacrifice had not yet been offered, right? And so God dwelt among them, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple, but always behind the veil in the innermost sanctum the Holy of Holies. And then, with the coming of Christ, God's presence moved into a new temple, a new tabernacle. As the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, as Jesus would say in John chapter 2, I'm the temple. I'm the temple. And so the revealed presence of God came not only to dwell among humanity and with humanity, but the Lord united himself with humanity through the incarnation. 
And it's because of that redeeming work of Christ that we now have become the temple of God. That's what the scripture says. God is in us. He dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we can work out our own salvation because God is in us. And I want you to notice what Paul says God is doing in us. He is working in us what we're working out. He's working in us what we're working out. Do you see what Paul is saying? As we work out our own salvation, it's God who's working in us. He's working behind the scenes, as it were. And it's not, and this is really important, it is not that we work for a while, and then whenever we get tired, God takes over and he works for a while. You know, I know the sentiment is, 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 is right, but I have a problem with the, what is it, the poem, Footprints in the Sand? Because it implies that there are times that we're walking on our own. I mean, God beside us, but we're walking on our own. And then, you know, there's that one set of footprints for a while. Well, why is there only one set of footprints here? That was the time I carried you. Well, let me tell you something. He's carrying you all the time. He's carrying me all the time. There's only one set of footprints. It's his. He's doing the work. And so this is the point. It's not that it's cooperative, that we work a little bit, and then God's going to come in, and he's going to kind of step in whenever we get a little lax. No. Whenever we're working out our salvation, God is working in us the whole time. The whole time. And what's more, the picture is even more vivid in the original language. God's work in us is continual. It is nonstop. I want you to think about this. Paul commands us to be working out our salvation. It's a command. It has to be our pursuit, he says. But the very fact that it's a command that we need to be told to do this, to do what we ought to do, that assumes that there are times when we're not really applying ourselves. We have to be told to do it, right? But God is unceasingly, continually working in us. That's a statement of fact. And it's given to us in the present tense so that God never takes a rest. He is working in you and he is working in me nonstop. As Isaiah 40 says, God never grows tired. He never grows weary. As Psalm 121 says, he doesn't sleep, nor does he slumber. Listen, God never dozes off on the job. He's always on the job, always working his good purpose in us. Now, God's work then is not only continual, but it's also effectual. Listen, though we have no strength on our own, The God who indwells us is omnipotent. You know, Paul, toward the end of Ephesians chapter 1, wants to give us a glimpse of this fact. But I want you to think of something. The power that parted the Red Sea dwells in you and me. The very same power that brought Lazarus out of the tomb, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that called all of creation into existence out of nothing. That very power is the power of God that works in us. His hand is not shortened, says the scripture. God is full of resource. 
all resource. He's the God of all resource. He's the God of unfailing faithfulness. He's the God of unending perseverance. God doesn't give up. And this is the God who's at work within us. I mean, what a comfort that ought to bring, shouldn't it? Listen, God doesn't work like we work. You know, I get tired. I get weary. And much of my work, sad to say, is erratic and inconsistent. It just is. I don't know of a time that I'm ever really doing my best. I can set out to say I want to do my best. But when I get through with whatever it is I'm doing, I look back on it and I think, well, you know, that could have been better. Right? It's always the way it is with us. And so not only do I get tired, do I get weary, not only is my work too often erratic and inconsistent, much too often I'm dull and unresponsive to his will. Sometimes I get fed up with my circumstances and then I have to repent before God. But I give thanks unto God for he never does. God never gets fed up with us, ever. He has set his love upon us. I love those passages in the Old Testament where the implication is God has every right to be completely fed up with them. But he says, how can I give you up? I've set my love upon you. And that's how it is with us. We give him plenty of reason to be fed up with us. To say, oh, I just don't think this is worth it. They're not worth it. They're too much work. You know, God never says that. God never says that. He continues to work despite my stumblings, despite my failures, despite my moments of rebellion. And believe me, there are moments of rebellion in the lives of Christians. There are. There are times when we know what we should do and we just stiffen our neck and say no. Of course, God always brings us to repentance, doesn't he? He always does. And I'm so thankful that he does. But at those times, God doesn't say, okay, I'm going to back off. I'm not doing anything else right now. Let's just see how well you do on your own. Well, you wouldn't do anything at all on your own. You'd collapse into nothing. No. And so I love this. God doesn't wait for me to get it. It's his work in me that ensures that eventually I will indeed get with the program. But he's not waiting on me. God is already at work, and he is fulfilling his purpose. And I want you to notice what Paul tells us that God is doing in us. He is working in us both the willing and the working. That's talking about us there. He is working in us the willing that is in us and the working that is in us. I want you to think of that. To will is to have a resolve of purpose for what we desire, right? Do we desire to please God? We can't take credit for that. It's his work in us. But this is important. If we only had half of this equation, if God was only in us working the willing, bringing the willing to us, we'd never succeed at anything. Because there is a huge difference between resolute desire and ability. You know, have you ever wanted to do something so badly you could taste it? 
You, you make all these plans, you set all of these goals, you gather all of the resources in order to do it. And yet, you find out after all is said and done, you just couldn't get it done. You know, I remember a young man who desperately wanted to play a particular instrument. And he did a lot of work and research. He found himself a masterful music instructor. He bought pages and pages of sheet music. He, he purchased the finest instrument he could afford. And then he began taking lessons. And after two years of countless time and effort, he was absolutely awful. You see, all the will in the world and no ability means that you won't succeed. You won't succeed. You know, we love these little catchphrases. Most of them aren't true. Where there's a will, there's a way. Not always. <laughs> Not always. So, Paul says then, he's not just working the willing in us. He's working in us to make us able. It's the working itself. Notice what Paul says. He's working both the willing and the working that's in us. I hope you see what he's saying here. As we work out our own salvation, the desire, the effort, and even the ability of what we're doing doesn't come from us. As we're working out our salvation, God is the one at work in us. And here is the great confidence we take from this. That means no matter how slowly we progress, that means no matter how often we stumble and fall, no matter how far it seems we yet have to go, our sanctification will indeed one day be complete. In the end, our will and our work will be fully aligned with his because that's what he's doing in us. That's what he's working in us. And so we will reach glorification because God is the one who is continually at work in us and his work is always effectual. Finally, as we close this morning, Paul tells us why God then is working in us. He's working in us to accomplish his good pleasure. And be sure you pay attention to the word his. His good pleasure. His eternal purpose. Now, this is a wondrous assurance, especially in times whenever we're confused and discouraged, isn't it? But again, it's because he's working his good pleasure, not ours. He's working all things together for our good, yes, but our good is not having things our way. That's our problem. We read that passage with our understanding of good. Good to me is getting what I want. No, it's not. True good for you is what God says is good for you. And what is good for me. He knows what's best. And whenever he comes again. His finished work of art. And that's what we are. His work of art. It will be finally unveiled. All of creation will behold and wonder. At the finished work of our Savior. The work he's been doing throughout human history. The work he's been doing in us. From the moment he came to dwell within us. This should give us such confidence. God is at work in us. And you know what? God never miscalculates, ever. He makes no mistakes, not even the most minuscule ones. Not a single mistake. Because he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things.
God is at work in us, and it is a divinely planned and perfectly executed work. Our work is hit and miss. It's off and on, but his work, divinely planned, perfectly executed. And knowing this is why we can work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Therein is the confidence we have. Our God is at work in us. And to him be all glory forever and ever.